Hi, everybody. This is Joe Lynch, and you are listening to Don't Go Out There, the horror movie podcast. My favorite horror movie podcast of all time. I'm just putting it out there right now, and it should be yours as well. They paid me to say this, but, you know, they, they paid me in cryptocurrency. I, I can use that still, right? That's good. In a world where zombies, ghosts, serial killers, and vampires all exist, it's Nico, Brian, Mike, and Dustin, and they are all that stand between you and the films that could end the world. Welcome to the Don't Go Out There Horror Movie Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Don't Go Out There Horror Movie Podcast. I just want to thank all our fans and listeners. I really appreciate all support. You guys are awesome. Super excited for this interview. We are joined tonight by an absolute legend of the business, known for Mayhem, Creepshow, Wrong Turn 2, and the upcoming horror thriller, Suitable Flesh, available in theaters and everywhere you rent movies on October 27th. Mr. Joe Lynch, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing, sir? Hi, everybody. I'm do- Well, now that I'm hanging out with you guys, I'm doing fantastic. Hey, flattery. <laughs> Hey, like you said, flattery gets you anywhere. <laughs> uh, can you talk about what it was that got you into filmmaking? Like, what drove you into this career? Wow. Um, if we're going to go all the way back, uh, it was, um, honestly, it was the first time that my mom bought me an, uh, an issue of Fangoria because it was the first time that I had ever kind of peeled the curtain back, so to speak, in terms of, like, how movies are made. Um, I was always interested in the in the form of the craft of it there were these books that they used to have at um multiplexes where they were like picture books on the making up they don't do it anymore i really wish that they did but i'd gone to see like my first movie ever was dawn of the dead when my mom took me to go see it at the nice. age of three the tender wow. age of three <laughs> nice she couldn't find she was a horror fan she couldn't find a babysitter it said on the little like uh, the little uh, box at the bottom. It said, you know, this film is unrated, not for sex. There's no sex in this film, but there's a lot of violence. So she went, ah, it'll be fine. And I remember <laughs> watching that film. I remember watching that film and going, weird. When someone got bit on the arm, you kind of saw where the makeup artist kind of stopped wow. because I guess they weren't expecting to, like, to see the bottom of the actor's arm. But I remember that. And then seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark and, you know, you'd buy these picture books and they would show you like, here's how the big ball rolled down the, you know, rolled after Indiana Jones. And here's how they made the face melt. And at that time I was like, cool, I want to do that. So I wanted to, I like, I emulated guys like Tom Savini and Rick Baker and Rob Bottin and Greg Kenham and, you know, all of those guys. So I wanted to be a makeup artist, but then I was also into acting. So I wanted to be Tom Savini, basically. And right. it wasn't until I saw Chuck Russell's The Blob that made me go, wait a second, the director gets to do all of that? And fit in the, like he gets to kind of dip their hand into all of those different departments? That's what I want to do. I want to be part of that. So that's really what got me into not just horror, but just in cinema in general, the magic of making movies, the way that all these different departments come together to make one moment work as well as it does. That's really what got me into it. And for you to remember that from age three, that has to be a core memory of yours. So that's, oh that's my incredible. I like, and then to be able to call George Romero, a friend late, like way later on, like, uh, 
um, you know, meeting him and then, you know, him saying like, Hey, you know, I really liked your movie. I'm like, just dead, but, but not, but not in a way that like, look, here's a guy, you know, a guy that's, you know, changed the face of cinema over and over again for years. And, you know, probably seen plenty of films himself, but to remember my film and then us talking about it as peers, like that, that just exploded my head. Like, cut to scanners gif of exploding head (laughs) but you know those are indelible moments that i never forget even when times are tough when you know things are not going right whether whether it's on set or in my own personal life i still have to remember those iconic moments for me that keep pushing me to keep don't to keep going to never quit you know that's why you know years ago got 10 years now um, Adam and Adam Green and I, who directed the Hatchet movies and Frozen, we started this podcast ourselves, essentially to talk to other filmmakers so that we can hear that we're not the only ones who have been through that shit and right. had that plight before. And that became very therapeutic for us to go, you know, as we used to always do it on a Friday. And after a week of just constant rejection and no's and hardships and nothing working out, then you hear that like your heroes went through the same thing you go eh we'll we'll keep going you know so it, it's it's always really good to have those things to remind yourself when times get tough that we are very blessed to be able to do what we do and talk to the people that we talk to it's it's very humbling but it's also very inspiring joe uh you brought up adam green just, me and brian we're going to spooky empire i'm looking forward to meeting him at the end of the month uh him and kane hodder i like those hatchet movies but i got to ask you since we have you on the show before we get into suitable flesh I got to ask about one of my personal favorites. You know, I'm a fan of the Wrong Turn franchise, even the later ones, which aren't the most favored. But Wrong Turn 2, that's when you joined the franchise. How did you approach that movie in the sense that you obviously went a little different route, that it was a little more lighthearted, comedic, but you stayed true to the cannibal hillbilly aspect. I really enjoyed that. It was a fun movie. Uh, Talk to us about Wrong Turn 2 real quick. Well, Wrong Turn 2 came to me. This is my first feature. And I was dead set on, I wanted to at least make one film, one feature, um, you know, lifelong dream since 88. I wanted to have that moment. And all the movies that I was growing up with at the time, especially like in that, in that moment in my uh, cinematic upbringing were splatter movies, movies like Reanimator and Return of the Living Dead and Evil Dead 2 and Friday the 13th Part 4, like these movies that were kind of tonal roller coasters, if you will, that played with both horror and comedy. Actually, another movie um, that was kind of in and around that time that I used as a tonal example of what I wanted to do when when uh, uh, when the director of Wrong Turn One, uh, Rob Schmidt, when he made his film, he had said in interviews that he wanted to make something akin to those 70s films like the Hills Have Eyes mm-hmm. and Cannibal Holocaust. Um, you know, they, they were a little more serious, still, you know, very playful, but, you know, he went a more serious route with that one. And I thought when I went in to pitch mine, I, I got that script. I was shooting drift racing in Tokyo at the time. And a friend of mine who was working at a production company got pitched that script. And they asked, does anyone know anybody who would want to make Wrong Turn 2? And Everybody else, in, you know, in the the, the table, kind of went. Oh, no, this is wrong turn too. It's a direct-to-video film. And Luke, uh, who was a friend of mine, said, "I know the guy." 
And he texted me. I was in Tokyo at the time. And he's like, would you want to do wrong turn two? And I went, fuck, yes, I do. Um, <laughs> because I love the first wrong turn. I thought it was a great throwback to those films that I loved in the 70s. But then I read the script. And, you know, even from the script phase, it, it seemed to have a different approach to right. this idea. And I went, this is Aliens. This is, I want to make right. the Aliens to the first film being Alien. And I had to remind Fox that constantly. Like when I showed them the first cut of the film, they went, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and then I went, guys, imagine if the first wrong turn is alien. Then remind yourself of what James Cameron did. And I'm not trying to compare myself to the great James Cameron. But what Cameron did tonally was shifted in a slightly different realm when right. tonally from the first film being like, you know, a, a haunted house in space to a more war film with an ensemble set in that world and once i said that i got no notes back from fox it was amazing nice. but they nice. they just needed to know that's the approach that i was going for and i mean look i i made that movie as if i was never going to make another movie again so i i literally went where's the kitchen sink <laughs> oh, and just threw it in there nice. i didn't think that i was going to make another movie after that for one reason or another and you know what even some of the most talented filmmakers out there, whether it's a marketing thing or it's just bad box office or what have you, sometimes never get another chance to make a movie out of their control. So I thought, look, I knew I was making a direct-to-video film, and I knew that there was a stigma behind that. But I had said to myself from, from the moment I got it, I go, I'm shooting this as if this is going to be on a thousand screens. So, But I also had the advantage and really exploited it because the Hills Have Eyes remake came out. And when Fox realized that they could slap unrated onto the box mm. and get away with selling thousands of more units because there's an, a, like a more extreme version of it, which at the time the marketplace wanted, yep. I was like, this means that I could, I don't have to go to the MPAA. I don't have to deal with those assholes like telling me 11 cuts for all the weird shit that I want to put into it. Like, <laughs> who doesn't want to see mutant masturbation and who doesn't want to see, you know, a loving incest scene between, you know, brother and sister and who doesn't want to split an American idol down the middle and have entrails fall out of her. Exactly. I wanted to be able to throw everything in there and not look back. And because of that, that time, that very particular time in the, in the cultural lexicon of the marketplace, I could get away with all that and put it in the movie. As long as I made my day, Fox didn't give a shit. So this wrong turn two is literally me screaming from the cheap seats going, I'm making this movie and <laughs> I don't give, give a shit. And shockingly, it, it still is one of their like best sellers ever on DVD, which still blows my mind that there are sickos out there that love the movie like me. Um, <laughs> but it, it really was, it, it solidified the moment that I, and I'll never forget it being on set and going, I can do this. I had, mythologized what a director does my entire life and then once i was literally in the shit like standing in a puddle of mud not the band um <laughs> but standing in that puddle of mud and with all the shit coming down on me and everyone looking at me to come up with answers to questions and problems and, and come up with solutions and i was in heaven i loved it and that was a moment where i go i can do this and if, if it wasn't for wrong turn two, I would have never had that opportunity. Well, I'm one of those sickos who love that movie. And uh, 
it's got a great cast and it may it was even more cool to me that ken kersinger was paul like i'm a big fan of freddy versus jason uh we so talked about dude, that when he like, was on the show it was awesome it was so weird um because i've known i knew kane as well mm-hmm. and to be able to you know because we shot the film in uh vancouver and a lot of you know one of the things you have to re- recognize that when you shoot a film in a foreign country even if it is canada or whatever it's only a couple hours away from portland and america and everything you still have to um, respect the uh, the location and the tax breaks that come with that. So you have to shoot with local actors. I got lucky enough where Ken, who's Canadian, uh, was available and he was interested. That's how you know. Like that's why I was right. like, I gotta get him. He's great. Um, and I knew his work. You know, not just from Freddy versus Jason, but all the other films that he had done. I was the first person when he first walked in and said, like, dude. Friday eight. I remember the you were the bartender. And right. Like, you remember that shit? I was like, of course <laughs> I do. And that immediately, he was like, well, I want to work with this guy. Um, but you know, like having those types of actors in the movie and knowing that I respected them not just as you know local talent, but talent I I care about. That that I think was something that made them go, all right. You know, even the old man. You know, the old man in uh, in Wrong Turn two, he was not supposed to be in the movie he was just a written different he was a different character and i was like we got to bring the guy from the first one back and he just so happened to be canadian so that worked out great and then now i have a connection between wrong turn one and wrong turn two that once you see it you go dude the guy the gas station attendant from the first film was connected the whole time (laughs) that to me that dude that's the sort of shit that i love like i I can go back and kind of rewrite history a little bit without fucking with the formula from the first one like that's the sort of shit that I get up in the morning for. All right. One more thing. And then I promise we'll get to suitable flesh, but I just want, I don't want to hold you up too much, but mayhem, you know, that movie is, is so fun and so unique. It's one of my favorites. I know you're proud of it as you should be. Tell me, I'm curious, where did you get your inspiration for that film? Working in corporate fucking America. That's where I got my inspiration. I dude, I literally got that script in a cubicle on the seventh floor of NBC Universal, corporate as thick a corporate America as you can fucking get. No <laughs> offense, guys. I, I no. love to work with you. Uh, not you guys. You guys are cool. I'm talking about like yeah. the, the legal department at Universal is <laughs> listening to this now going, what did you say, Joe? What was that again? Uh, I was working a corporate job at the time. Uh, you know, when you're an independent filmmaker, uh, you know, you don't have the four picture deal at the development uh, bungalow at the studio. You're, you have to pay the bills. And I had a family and I had to make sure that I was making ends meet. So after I had finished Everly, I had, I didn't have any prospects because the movie took a while to come out and I needed to bring home the bacon, so to speak. So I went back to work and I used to work for a company called G4, which was a video game network. And they got sucked up into the NBC Comcast universal conglomeration and they ultimately turned into another network called Esquire, the <clears throat> Bespoke Gentlemen's uh, Network. Yeah. <laughs> but I, it was a job. And they hired me back, um, you know, because I had known some of the people there when it was G4. And then I went off and made Everlane. When I came back, it was a everyone was wearing suits. And I'm a black T-shirt kind of guy. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Well, hey, if the, <laughs> if the check clears, why not? But right. I got so sucked up into the corporate world and I hated it. I'm just not that type of dude, but 
I needed to do it. So I was working this job and hating life and, you know, wondering who stole my goddamn coffee cup. And, you know, we, is it bagel Thursday? And, oh my God, I got to fill out that other TPS report. It was just, it was hell. And then this script pops into my inbox and I swear to God, I remember looking around going, is this a joke? Is someone honking me? Because this is my life. I was Derek in that movie. I, I know what it feels like to be a cog in the machine. Yeah. So when I read that script, I was like, there is no better time for me right. to tell this story right now. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, um, gets benefited to you as a director is you get to do a director's pass. And um, I infused a lot of my own personal feelings towards corporate America and all the strife that I had, the coffee mug, all of the, the shit that Derek was going through. I was able to transfer all of that into the script. And then when you're talking to the, you know, the actors, especially with Steven, and he would ask these questions of like what it was like to be like that. Cause he never had a job like that. Right. I did. And you know, all of the, there's a moment where um, someone says, uh, actually it was the guy that fires him uh, who I modeled after Brady Finellis. Um, he says, let's discuss. Or the boss says it even, that wasn't in the script. That was the bullshit, that passive aggressive bullshit that I would hear all the time <laughs> when I was in a cubicle, when you would be like, I don't think this is right. And they go, let's discuss, you know what, let's put a pin in this. Right. Fuck you. <laughs> May yeah. Mayhem was my fuck you to corporate America. And like, it just, it was a, it was the perfect way for me to purge all the demons that I had with that. If I had not gone through that, I, I think that movie would have been a different film. Well, I love that movie, but um, okay. Thank so you. suitable flesh comes out. All right, October let's get the horny shit. <laughs> comes out October 27th. Uh, based on H.P. Lovecraft's story, The Thing on the Doorstep, with the screenplay by the legendary Dennis Paoli of Reanimator fame, obviously. But with that kind of lineage involved, was there nothing but excitement to take this project on? Or was there a little bit of pressure being that, you know, it's a Lovecraftian story uh, written by the great Dennis Paoli? Like, talk a little bit about that for me. I was nervous as hell because, you know, it's, I, what's funny is an, another movie keeps coming up. Uh, in conversation. It's a movie that I had in the back of my head as like a model for this, which was uh, AI, the Steven okay. Spielberg movie that he did when Kubrick died. Right. And he was kind of given that script and given that responsibility. And, you know, um, you know, uh, opinions vary on how well he honored what Kubrick had done or made it his own. Right. But, um, you know, I knew about this project because Stuart told me about it years earlier when he was developing it with um with dennis and brian usna um back when um mick garris and they, they do it every often every so often now and again but they would have these masters of horror dinners where they would get all these horror directors together and now imagine it's i'm sitting there and if you could take like a vr goggle and put it onto that moment and you'd be like there's joe dante and there's toby hooper and there's john landis and wow there's argento and there's del toro sitting you know sitting next to me and oh wait my, who, who invited Michael Mann? And wow. then you veer over and there's Stuart Gordon and he's sitting next to you and you just strike up a conversation with these dudes. Wow. And you just had like, and I've known Stuart over the years and there was one point we were at this place called the Smokehouse in Burbank and he just started, we were, you know, we shoot the shit and you're like, so what are you doing next? And he's like, oh, I'm doing this thing called the thing on the doorstep. I'm like, oh my God, another Lovecraft. And to me as a fan, I was like, guys, getting the band back together. How cool is that? 
Right. And then obviously it didn't work out, you know, for Stuart directing it. So when I got it, you know, I immediately read it and went, this is cool, but what if we did a little tweak? And it's, it's the, it's the kind of little tweak that you, you could make or break you getting the job, which was the gender swap. Originally oh. it was two men in the role and, and uh, Asa was uh, Azanith, which was a, a, a young woman. And I thought, this is where they go, hard pass, let's find someone else. But in my case, I was lucky enough where when we made the suggestion, my writing partner and I, they came back and said, that's really interesting. Let's, let's talk about this more. And then three weeks later, Dennis had uh, gone back into the script and gotten into the DNA of it and really reshaped it in a way that felt both new and different to what Lovecraft was doing, but still the same. It still felt like it was Lovecraft, but it just so happened that now we've changed the genders in a way that felt very much the way that I felt Stuart Gordon would have approached this today because he was a provocateur. He was always pushing buttons, but never forgetting the audience and never trying to alienate them. So for me, I went, that feels like something Stuart would have done. So why can't I do it? And they, everyone seemed to get that jive. And when we were off to the races from there, you know, but that, that's where I wanted to make sure that I was respecting Lovecraft and was respecting Stuart. Right. But at the same time, making sure that like now the reins are with me and I had a huge responsibility, but if I can't satisfy my own cinematic fetishes with this, then, then don't hire me, find someone else. And everybody was cool with that. And they were even more excited when we actually got into it. Yeah, awesome. Well, we actually had the privilege of seeing an early screener. And let me just say, Heather Graham, like, you know, as an audience, we've right. really, see, we really seen the evolution of, of Heather, where she's gone from awesome powers to hangover to boogie nights. And, you know, she's at a point in her career with this where she's able to really show her acting chops. And, and personally, she reminded me a lot of Michelle Pfeiffer in this movie. I mean, she was she was very impressive. Can you talk a little bit about walk, working with her? Well, working with Heather was a dream because you have someone who has worked with some of the best directors ever, you know, from, uh, you know, Gus Van Sant early on in, um, in Drugstore Cowboy to uh, obviously Paul Thomas Anderson and Boogie Nights to Jay Roach, you know, knowing comedy from the great Jay Roach and Austin Powers. Um, you know, she's a director herself. She's now in the middle of like finishing her second feature. Um, but she is the type of actor that, even just as a fan, as a casual fan, always felt fearless. I'll never forget, you know, everyone talks about Boogie Nights, you know, and we've been talking a lot about it when I'm doing, you know, talking to other people about it. And everyone brings up Boogie Nights, but it always seems like everyone brings up Boogie Nights in like the first half, you know, the everything's going great and the 70s are awesome and everybody's having sex and woo, yay, cocaine. And then the bad side on the, on the flip end, and there's a scene where, like, because when, when her name was brought up, you know, I was only trepidatious for a moment because of like, well, I hadn't, you know, I know she works a lot, but I hadn't thought that she had would even be willing to do something this crazy. Um, you know, would she be into this? You know, it seemed like she was doing, you know, more romantic comedy stuff, but would she be willing to go the dark side? And the moment that I thought about the scene in the limo in Boogie Nights, where she's about to embark on a very dark situation, you know, shot on video. And there's a moment where it snap zooms into her face and she looks at the camera and it haunts me to this day. 
But that also made me go, that's who I'm looking for. I need someone who can play both sides of this character's coin. And now I need three other versions of that because she's not just playing herself. She's playing other characters as well. So once we had one Zoom session, you know, when we were first talking and within 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, I was like, oh, I'm in if you're in. And she's like, well, I'm in if you're in. And we're like, we're in, let's go. And that was it, man. And then watching her work was, it was amazing. You know, like when it's, it is a very small privilege when you were on set with true artists like that and they get to explore, like you were talking about mayhem before, you know, watching Steven and Samara on set conjure up some of the stuff that they were conjuring up. And then, then I would throw stuff out there and the three of us, it was very symbiotic. It was very much of a thruple, if you will, creatively, of course. Um, but here with Suitable Flesh, same thing. When you can have people like Judah and Heather in the same room and they are conjuring stuff up together and feeding off of each other's energies, man, it, it, is, it is a gift to watch that. And then to be like, try this. And they go, okay. And they jump into it, man. There's so many of those moments. Like there's a moment in the movie where Heather puts her feet up. And when she says like, I feel like a new woman and she wiggles her toes like that fucking killed me like i was I, I think if you listen to the tape like right after she said it i blew the rest of the tape because i just go and just start laughing she wouldn't try that if she didn't feel comfortable in the environment with the other actors with me and that to me is that's perfect cinematic craft symbiosis that everybody is feeding off of each other's energies and being able to do that and create like that man it's the, it's a dream well, you mentioned the performance or you mentioned Judah. I wanted to talk about his dynamic performance. I mean, being asked to play so many different characters, I knew he was gifted from his work with the babysitter movies and summer of 84, but I guess I didn't realize he was this versatile. Can you talk a little bit about him? Well, getting Judah or getting the Asa character right was so difficult. You know, you always hear about um, other films and how they have this audition process and how people like I looked at a hundred kids before you know Tatum O'Neill walked through the door or you know like I just happened upon this kid at a playground after looking far and wide and there's Eddie Furlong you never know when it comes to someone who's in a younger realm who hasn't had the experience of say someone like Heather Graham who started making movies when she was a teenager and then she just kind of learned her craft on camera while she went, you know, in a good way, Judah, you know, had not gone, had not walked a mile in those kind of shoes before. And, you know, I knew his work from The Babysitter and, you know, having um, Samara Weaving gush about this kid. Also, I was like, well, if Samara thinks, you know, he's pretty good, he must be great. But also seeing him, not just in Summer of 84, but in Christmas Chronicles, like I, I had seen his work and then he had worked with uh, Jean-Marc uh, Vallée as well. So he had a great thus far lineage of experience with directors. But uh, what was interesting was that he wouldn't read for us. And this is not a bad thing. It's just, you know, like sometimes when you have a body of work or you're busy or whatever, sometimes they can't put themselves on tape. But I'm like, well, can I have a conversation with him? So we got on, we got on a Zoom call just like this. And I liked doing, I like doing that just to break the ice. Even if just having a conversation, sometimes I've cast people before having not had them read a goddamn word of the script. There's just a feeling you get. You get that, what I like to call the Barton Fink feeling where you just, it's this intrinsic 
like relationship connection that you have with the other artist. And again, same thing with Heather. Like we ended up talking, Jude and I talked about Richard Linkletter movies for a good hour before I even talked about the, the script. And there was something that was just so relatable between the two of us that the second I started mentioning what I wanted to do with Suitable Flesh, he launched into his feeling of what Suitable Flesh was. And I just went, we're good. I don't <laughs> like, he's like, do you want me to read? I'm like, no, you, do you want to read? He's like, I mean, I will, if you want me to, I'm like, I don't need you to honestly, like if my producers want to see something like some kind of example of what we can, you know, we can work with. Sure. But I'm confident. And that kid is a part of my French, a motherfucking movie star. Uh, he nice. is so versatile and so professional and brings it. He's one of those actors that once he steps on set, just very much like Heather, everyone else kind of perks up and goes, Oh shit. Okay. Someone came to play. And that only makes them work harder. And now take Heather and Judah and put them together. Sometimes literally, you know, you have two actors who are, you know, not in competition, right. but complementing each other with craft. And Ju Judah is one of the best actors I've ever worked with. And I, God, I, if the cinema gods give me the, the chance to do it again, I would do it in a heartbeat. Plus, he also dealt with a lot of uh, makeup effects at times. And some people do not like that. And he, let's just say that he was very patient with us. And I, and I applaud him for that patience. Fantastic. Well, just a couple more names. I feel like we have to ask you about Barbara, sure. Crampton, Barbara Crampton and Jason Richard Miller. Um, was there anyone else up to, for consideration for playing Dr. Umpton? I mean, she played, she seemed perfect for the role. And then also the effects that Jason Richard Miller pulled off. I mean, can you talk a little bit about, the process working with him and, and the death scenes. Sure. Well, I'll do here. I'll do Barbara Crampton first. Barbara Crampton is the queen of horror and there is no one else right now uh, or maybe even before her or whatever that uh, holds a candle to what she's done for the genre, um, both uh, on camera and off. Um, she is the reason why I am talking to you guys today, because if it wasn't for her, uh, fostering the script and find like going to Dennis Paoli and saying, what else do you have out there and pushing him to send her the script for suitable flesh for uh, the thing on the doorstep, which is what it was originally called. Um, talking to Stuart and asking his advice on who he thought might want to be part of this and asking her about me. Um, she's a great producer, you know, for, for an amazing actor, she's a goddamn great for producer. And that's, that's saying a lot. Um, not not all actors know how to produce. And you know what? Not all producers know how to act, even though they think they do. Um, Barbara is the whole fucking enchilada, man. Um, and, and the kind of enchilada that doesn't give you the shit like in, in uh, Friday the 13th Part 5. And I know you guys get that joke. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> she, she is the best enchilada. She is everything. She's the beans. She's the fucking cheese on top. She She pushed me every day, but at the same time, I've never felt more protected by a producer in my life than Barbara Crampton. She, um, she's the reason why I'm talking to you. She's the reason why the movie is what it is. Um, she championed me in all the right spots. She also challenged me in a lot of spots too, in the best way that I can look back and go, I'm really glad that she did that because if she didn't, I might've been complacent with certain choices. Um, but then 
and that's just a producer. Then you get to throw her in front of the camera, throw some eyeglasses on her, tell her that she has to vape, which was really surreal to tell Barbara, like, I, I want you to vape for this. I get to vape? Cool. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, I, but I needed her to do that because that that's kind of a crucial character element that you know when you see the 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 as the movie progresses, right. you see why we had that happen. It had to happen. But to watch her on set and act the way she does is spellbind. Like I got to watch her. So there's uh, there's a there's a collection of scenes that take place in the basement of this old house. And, you know, it was, God, I'm trying to remember how many pages. It was a lot of pages that day. It was like, I think about 25 to 30 pages of co collective scenes that we had to do together that would be intercut throughout the uh, entire second act of the film. A lot of work. And it was a lot of work for both Barbara and for Judah. And it's two people in a room. And it sounds easy. But when you're in a cramped space like that, uh, I don't know if you guys ever dealt with this before, but, um, you know, when you're shooting a scene like that, there's a term called flipping the world, which means that, like, if you're shooting everything from this way, you should responsibly shoot everything going this way, because the second that you start shooting the, the reverse on that, that changes the lighting, that sometimes changes the uh, art direction, it, it changes eye lines. It's also for the actors, it's, you know, it's a little difficult to reacclimate yourself and go the other way. Right. So... The only way that we were going to make our day was if we shot like 10 or 15 scenes all going one way and then flip the world and shoot all of that again the other way, starting from scratch. And some actors do not like that. Sometimes it's out of necessity, which it was for us. But to watch Barbara Crampton do all of these scenes, sometimes all in the same shot, and then never miss a beat, never miss a step. And then I call cut and then she's making sure that everybody is okay on set, making, oh, did you call that guy for tomorrow? Did the, did lunch get here to make sure everything? She was, she was putting on her producer hat and then I'd have to go, Barbara, okay, and action. And then she'd go right back into it. What a fucking professional. Like, and she she's really, like she is, there's no one else like Barbara Crampton in so many forms, not just as an actor, but a performer. I mean, but a producer. And uh, she's the she is one of the shining lights of our genre right now, and like I'm so glad to have her in many ways. Now, Jason R. Miller, or who was our visual effects producer, I had known for years. He actually worked as uh, Adam Green's assistant, like a decade ago, on you know at Aeroscope, and he was starting to dabble in visual effects, and he was doing like second unit directing for um, for Frozen. And he was doing a lot of the visual effects and everything. And then uh, they split off and Jason kind of went on his own path and started creating this amazing visual effects company that he did. So when we were putting together the film in, in pre-production, um, the producers had already worked with Jason on Glorious. And I really liked the effects in Glorious, especially this one scene where um, all this graffiti starts kind of writing itself on the wall. There was something really cool about that. And I thought, God, that's a really cool effect. I had no clue that Jason had done it. So they called me in. They're like, hey, listen, you know, we need a visual effects producer. When um, when are you, you know, like, are you cool with us working with the guy that we did Glorious with? I'm like, yeah, that whoever did that was awesome. Like, it was Jason Miller. I'm like, I know that guy. Oh, my God. It, and then getting on a Zoom call with him, and we were, like, both looking at each other, like, can you believe this, really? Like, we've 
like our paths had kind of gone like this and then come back and get around again. Um, Jason was uh, tantamount for us uh, in terms of being able to achieve all the stuff that we wanted to do visually, because there was a, there was a lot of stuff that I knew going in that I was very specific on how I wanted to shoot it, how I would shoot it. Um, everything from like the transition from one room to the other and days and times changing in one shot all the way to, you know, the, the, the moment that I like to call the smashing, which is the backup camera moment. Um, all these things had to be worked out before we shot. Because if I just went like, oh, you know what? We're just going to figure it out on the day. It would have cost everyone so much more time and money fixing all of that. You have to have a, a good game plan. So I storyboarded all of those moments in the worst way possible. You'll see it on the special features on the Blu-ray. I cannot draw for shit, but I'm at a fantastic tracer. Um, but I then <laughs> I worked very diligently with Jason and his team in how we would achieve all those things so that when I went on set, I knew exactly the plates I needed. I need, you know, and I had done visual effects and editing before uh, a lot of it. And so I knew the language enough, but being able to call Jason up and say, Hey, listen, so I, you know, I'm getting a shot of someone falling off of a building, you know, what's my lat latitude longitude on how much information you need before I leave set. Cause I'm shooting in Mississippi. Right. I ain't coming back. <laughs> and we have to leave this location tonight. So what do you need? And he would tell me everything right on the day. And we got exactly what he needed. And, you know, and, and then being able to work with him back and forth, you know, all over a laptop, you know, was great. You know, nice. him and his team were fantastic in being able to achieve everything that we wanted on a very minuscule budget and minuscule time. And, you know, then I'll sit down and I'll watch Ant-Man and go like, oh God, and just shudder to think <laughs> about all the crap that you have to deal with that, you know, like that director and those, those filmmakers had to deal with, with like these tapestries of visual effect. Whereas I'm just looking for a little square in the middle of a shot and making sure that that timing is perfect. When you have collaborators like Jason, you know, to be able to kind of help you out, achieve a vision of something like that, that you've had in your head for 15 years, those are the kind of people that you want to work with over and over again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Joe, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Suitable Flesh comes out on October 27th in theaters and streaming. Heather Graham psychiatrist Elizabeth Derby becomes obsessed with helping a young patient suffering from what she thinks is a personality disorder. And let's just say it leads to some dark places. We all saw and thought it was another great addition to your directorial portfolio, Mr. Lynch. Anything else you'd like to talk Stop about? It. Stop it, Mr. Lynch shit. Stop it. No, don't come cut it. Cut, cut, cut. It's Joe. Joe, come on. I'm Joe, on. is there anything else you'd like to talk about in regards to suitable flesh before we let you go? Uh, well, I hope that people get to see it in the theater. Here's the thing. This is, this is um, a lot of people have been calling this movie a midnight movie. I would not necessarily call this a midnight movie because maybe 10 years from now when it's got like a bunch of fan base people and people want to see it like retroactively together at the new Beverly or wherever you see midnight movies. Sure. Right now, I feel like this movie, if you're seeing it in the theater, it's a seven o'clock movie. Why? Okay. Because you get out of work, you want to get, you know, like you want to see a fun movie. Then afterwards, you can go have a drink and talk about it. Maybe, you know, maybe get a little amorous afterwards. If you see it at home on VOD, it's a nine o'clock movie because you have a nice dinner, you and your, you know, significant other, maybe someone that you're just dating, maybe someone that's a long time, you know, long time partner, whatever. You're like, I want to watch a good erotic thriller with body swapping and cosmic horror and Lovecraft and body fluids and all this shit. 
hey, I got, I just got just the movie. You throw it in by 10, 30, 11 o'clock. Hopefully you're getting, you're feeling the feels and you can kind of go into the other room. That's a good <laughs> nine, nine o'clock movie. Midnight movie, give it a couple of years. But th- those, those are just my, my, uh, my uh, words of wisdom to anybody who's going to see it in theaters October 27th or uh, on VOD October 27th. And then in January on uh, Blu-ray and also Shudder, just see it at the right time. It'll do you right. Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It was awesome. Oh my God. Seriously. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks for taking your time out on a Sunday too. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Joe. All right. Have a good one. You You too. too.